So you can download the handout. Off we go. Should I just leave this up here? Yes. Whatever you want. Tonight is our third and final lecture in this particular series with Jack Cottrell. Interim, since the last time he was here, I was in Nepal doing teaching and I and I was kidding with him. I took three of his books over and the, the guy who organized it is a Nepali who went to school in Kerala. So he has strong English skills, so I left him with him. <laughs> I got an email the other day that said, send more books. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I took the Save by Grace. Um, many of the Nepali do speak English because it was a British protectorate for a number, number of years. 20, 25 of them all together in that. And, and I told Jack it takes him 15 weeks to teach Dr. Man. It took me 30 minutes to teach Dr. Man. That's all I know. You, you know taught him well then. <laughs> oh, man, but we talked taught grace and so forth is basically all the stuff that I learned from Jack Cottrell and so now it's mm -hmm. from there as well. Uh, you guys know and I you know how much I care for this guy and how much of an impact he's made on my life. A number of you have that same testimony and I appreciate that as that part goes along. Um, we still have a few books left. Kent said they're eight dollars. I'll let them go for ten uh, tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other part I've been doing is uh, you know just passing these on to other people particularly. Uh, particularly this one, Saved by Grace, because there is such a, a fear factor among people, among Christians particularly, that they're not going to heaven. And this book really allays that fear and reminds of that. So these may be great Christmas presents for your neighbors and friends, you know. And, and again, $8, but for tonight's special deal, 10 bucks. Uh, you'll be in good shape, all right? But thanks for being here tonight. Let me pray. I'm already cutting into three minutes of your time. I apologize. For that, I'll make it up. I knew you would. Lord, thank you for this evening and look forward to the things that you will teach us. I thank you for Dr. Cottrell being here. ways in which he uh, opens the Word of God for us. Father, I pray that tonight you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, uh, hands and feet to put into action the things that we learn. Thank you for this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Can you hear me? All right, that's good. I'll keep talking at this rate then. And it's been a pleasure uh, for me to have uh, been here with you. Uh, we have an old history here at White Oak, as you probably know. We became members here in 1967 and um, remained here for I don't know how many years. My, if my wife were speaking, she knows all the history. She's, she's got it all memorized up here. But uh, she knows a whole lot of you, a lot better than I do. My memory just doesn't work like hers. But anyway, it's a pleasure to be back, pleasure to talk to you, especially about grace. You may remember that the first night, if you were here the first night I was, uh, which would be two nights ago, um, I tried to explain the difference between law and grace. That uh, we're under God's law as a way of life, but we're not under law as a way of salvation. We're under grace as a way of salvation. Now, I want to apply that tonight to something that's very familiar to every one of you. It's what we call our plan of salvation. And you have an outline there tonight that's called God's plan of salvation. And what we mean by that is what we tell people who are not Christians on how to be saved. And we usually go back to Walter Scott, 
who was a Restoration Movement preacher back in the early 1800s. He uh, came up with what we've called the five-finger exercise, so we usually try to have five items. And I grew up with this, uh, and um, the, the one that I remember the most of the five things you have to do to be saved, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and what's the next one? Live the Christian life. That is law. That, uh, what I'm going to tell you tonight is that uh, that is a faulty way of explaining how to be saved. We, this is not how anybody is saved. Is when you put those five things together as if they all mean the same thing in the plan of salvation. Have you ever seen this plan illustrated with five steps? You know, the first step is to believe, then you go up a step, that's repent, then confess, then be baptized, then live the Christian life. And if you really drew it right, that's a big one. <laughs> because that covers the rest of your life. And any, at any time in the rest of your life, according to the way we explain that, you could do something that would just cancel the whole thing out. And you're lost again. Well, th there's a big problem there. And the problem is taking that last element of living the Christian life and treating it in the same way you treat believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. If you go back to uh, the first night, the difference between law and grace, I pointed out that there are law commandments, which we're supposed to obey but we're not saved by, and there are also grace commandments, which we do obey as conditions for being saved. The first four of these things are grace commandments. Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. These are the conditions for receiving and keeping salvation. But the last one of those, live the Christian life, this is obedience to your law commandments. Or it's what the Apostle Paul calls works of law. And he tells us in Romans 3.28 that we're justified, which means forgiven, our sins are forgiven by our faith in Jesus Christ, which is the main one of those grace commandments. But we're not justified by works of law. We're not forgiven based on how well we live the Christian life. That's a hard thing for us to understand because we've not been taught that uh, from the beginning practically. But that's the uh, essence of tonight, uh, uh, tonight's lesson. And that is that uh, that plan of salvation, as it's usually taught, needs to be replaced by a different way of explaining to the unsaved how to be saved. So I'm going to suggest that uh, there's another plan of salvation that's taken directly from the Bible. It is uh, based specifically on 
statements made by the Apostle Paul in two of his letters. And these two letters were written at about the same time. And if you study them both, you'll see that they cover pretty much the same material. One is the letter to the Ephesians. The other is the letter to the Colossians. And Paul wrote those letters while he was in prison. They're called prison epistles along with two others. But he seemed to have written them about the same time. In fact, right after he wrote them, he gave them to one of his assistants, a guy named Tychicus. How'd you like to name your little kid Tychicus? <laughs> anyway, he gave, him, gave the letters to Tychicus, and he carried these letters to these two churches, which were not too far apart, one in Ephesus and one in Colossae. And in these letters, Paul makes two statements. And they're in your outline in the introduction. And I want to show you here that in these two passages, one from Ephesians and one from Colossians, you have a, a complete way of explaining to an unbeliever how to be saved. And these two passages have um, four items that we're going to look at. Now, if you notice, on your outline at the very top of page one, I've got the five parts of the, the traditional plan of salvation where the sinner is saved, number one, by faith, number two, by repentance, number three, by confession, number four, by baptism, number five, by living the Christian life. All five of those have the word by in front of them. But you'll notice that the four elements that we're drawing from Ephesians and Colossians have different prepositions. Now, I'm, I, I taught freshman English at the Cincinnati Bible Seminary for four years, so I know what a preposition is. <laughs> yeah, and so do my students, I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> But here we have four different prepositions, which means that these four things that are related to salvation are related in different ways. They're not all related to salvation in the same way, but they are four necessary relationships. You notice that the four things we're going to see in those two passages is that we are saved, and that should be saved with a D on the end of it. Uh, I showed my uh, errancy there. Anyway, by grace, by grace as the way of being saved, through faith as the means of receiving salvation, in baptism as the time when it's received, for good works, which is the purpose. And the for good works is the same as living the Christian life. But we're not saved by these good works. We're saved for doing good works. Now here are the two passages from the uh, New American Standard Bible. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Everybody knows this passage. Clear across Christendom, especially our faith-only Protestant friends. They know this passage. For by grace, there's the first one, by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And that, now the that means that salvation, and that salvation is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, that'll be important a little later on, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, which is the being born again into a new creation, we're His workmanship, created new. This is the new creation in Christ Jesus for good works. God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, that's what He says here in uh, Ephesians. Now, you notice there's one thing He didn't mention there. What's the one thing He didn't mention? He didn't mention baptism. Now, in the book of Ephesians, baptism is mentioned, but not in this passage. But what we're going to do now is skip over to the Colossian letter, which follows a lot of the, almost the same outline that Ephesians does. And in the first dozen or so verses of Ephesians 2, he summarizes in Colossians in verses uh, 11, 12, and 13. So you have pretty much the same ground covered here. Notice how he puts this in Colossians 2, 12, and 13. Having been buried with him, when? In baptism. In which you were also raised up with him. Now, let me tell you, being buried with Christ and being raised up with Christ is the same as this new creation that he mentioned the way he put it back in Ephesians. Created new, created in Christ Jesus. And that's because we were buried with him. The old man was buried with him. And the new person is new creation. And so he says, yes, we were saved with this new creation in baptism. But then he says, line two, through faith. Well, that sounds familiar. Did he, did he say that in Ephesians? Same thing. Through faith. Faith in what? The working of God. Not faith in yourself, not faith in your works, not faith in how good you are, but faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead physically, so in your baptism. That's a resurrection from the dead. God raised you spiritually from the spiritual death. You, uh, God raised him from the dead. So when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now in those two passages, when you put them together, you find these four things that were mentioned above, that we're saved by grace, through faith, in baptism, for good works. So what I'm suggesting here is, this is really how you need to explain to a lost person how to be saved. And you need to understand the way Paul's putting it here and understand the meaning of the various images that he is giving. This lesson, and I'm sure we'll not be able to cover everything in the detail it should be covered in, 
but the, uh, I wanted to comment on the four items. Actually, I've already commented on the first one. Saved by grace as the way of being saved. Actually, I commented on that the first night we met and the second night we met. <laughs> so uh, if you go back, if you want to get that one, you go back to the first two lessons, especially that first lesson. Saved by grace. That's the way we're saved rather than by our works, rather than by what we do. It's what God does. But let's focus on the second item then. We're saved through faith. And I'm using this word means to illustrate how faith is involved in salvation. Faith is the means by which we receive salvation. You can feel free if you want to walk right in front of me here. I know. Yeah, that's fine. I tell you the truth, when, when Barb and I got here tonight, there was nobody here and the doors were locked. I'd much rather be in your situation. <laughs> anyway, we're saved through faith as the means of receiving salvation. Now, I think I've already explained what faith is. There's two elements to it. Uh, faith is believing that certain things are true, especially about Jesus and about salvation. We're not going to go back into that. Uh, I'll give you here some things to review if you want. But it's also, it's not just believing with your mind that some things are true, but faith is also a decision of your will, a decision of the will, a submission of your will to Jesus, who, is, who becomes your Lord and your Savior, because you commit yourself to Him. That's part of what faith is. You see, a person could believe certain things are true and not be saved. They could believe everything's true about Jesus and about salvation, but still not be saved until they have this second part of faith, which is the surrender of the whole person in trust, trusting Jesus as the one who will save. And you can see some passages there that use the word faith in that sense. But I want to focus on the word means. Faith is the means of salvation. What do we, this is just a play on words, what do we mean by means? Well, if salvation were a stuff, and in a sense I guess you could say it is, if salvation were a stuff that had to be inserted into you so that you could say, now I'm saved, I've got salvation in me, where's the opening into which it would be inserted? Where do you put it? Where does God put this grace when He gives it to us as a gift? Well, in this context, that's what the word means is all about. It's the connecting point, the entryway, the receptacle or point of reception, the opening at which grace enters the sinner's life and by which the sinner grasps this gift of grace. Because it has to be a specific thing. You see, in this sense, faith and grace are designed to connect 
and to one another. Romans 4 verse 16 kind of sums it up. That's written, but here's what it says. Romans 4 16, For this reason it, namely your salvation, for this reason your salvation is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Because there are some things that are not consistent with grace as a way of salvation. And Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, when he says, By grace you're saved through faith, but not of works. Because when Paul's talking about works, he's talking about things that are not consistent with receiving salvation, receiving grace. But faith is what is uh, consistent. Now, I have an illustration I'm going to use here. And I'm glad you have this thing right here. I'm going to talk about electricity. Ah! Well, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, just kidding. Electricity. That's a, that's a stuff. Some kind of a stuff. It's a thing or a stuff. And if you're going to, ha ha if you have a, a device, an appliance, or uh, some kind of an instrument that needs electricity to work, you got to plug it into the electricity to make that electricity transfer into something like a microphone here. So wh what usually is the means by which electricity reaches the device it's supposed to empower? I, I wish I could unplug this, but I'm afraid I'd mess it up. The, the means by which the electricity, the electricity's over here, right? The means by which the electricity reaches this is this little plug right here. That's the only part of this whole device that will touch the electricity. Now, I could unplug this and I could touch this microphone all over the place. I could run it up and down this wire. No electricity would be transferred because it's this plug that's designed to touch the electricity and transfer it into the device. That's the means. See, the plug is the means for transferring. Now, when you apply this to the salvation issue, this is grace. This is the power. This is the saving power. The electricity lights you up when you're a Christian. And the plug is faith. That's what plugs in. So, um, faith is, is really the only part of our response. There are other things we do but faith is the only means by which we connect with salvation. Now, the, what, what we have here is a valid concept. Now, notice the way I'm going to say this. This is a valid way of talking about faith only. Now, in the Restoration Movement, when you say faith only, you're immediately shot dead as a heretic. At least that's what we want to do, you know. Not really. 
But we, 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 uh, we're against faith only because the Protestant world, mostly, does not use that concept correctly. I'll get back to that. But here's a correct way to think about faith only. Of all these four things that are involved in receiving salvation, by grace, through faith, in baptism, uh, for good works, or even if you go back to believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, the only thing that actually comes into contact with the grace is the faith. For this reason, it is by faith, so that it may be by grace. Romans 4, 16. This is, this is really what Paul is teaching here in the book of Romans in the first part because he, he says over and over and over again, I've got the passages listed there if you want to look them up. Uh, I'm not going to go into it here, but especially in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he says, by faith you're justified. By faith you receive salvation. It's because we're justified by faith that we have peace with God. He just says these things over and over. It's by faith. In the, sense of as, in the sense that faith is the means by which the grace is transferred into your life. It's the means of receiving salvation. Not only in Romans does he teach that, but I, I say here he teaches it in other letters as well. Uh, notice we've quoted already from Ephesians and Colossians. In both those passages he says it's through faith. It's through faith that we're born again. It's through faith that we're buried with Christ and raised from the dead and created anew and so on. Why is it that we in the Restoration Movement are so opposed to that one little phrase, faith only? Why are we so scared of that? I'll tell you why. It's because most Protestants get it wrong. And when they say faith only, they mean without baptism. That baptism it doesn't belong in the picture at all. That's what they mean by faith only. And I'm saying here, that's not the point. Faith is the means of receiving salvation. But the deal is this. There are other conditions that God has laid down for receiving salvation. Other conditions. I've noticed this in the writings of uh, most of the Protestant world. Now when I say most Protestants, I'm not including Lutherans because Martin Luther had a great view of the meaning of baptism. He wasn't very good on the person to be baptized and when, but he believed that baptism was for salvation. But the guy that was sort of his uh, Swiss counterpart over in Switzerland at the same time as Luther, a fellow named Huldrich Zwingli, I love to say that, Huldrich Zwingli, a Swiss reformer, he began teaching something that was totally different from anything that had been taught up to that point. In fact, he himself knew that because he said in a writing of his in 1525 A.D., he said, everybody before me has been wrong about <laughs> baptism. Why were they wrong? Because they connected with salvation. 
And Zwingli said, no, no, not <laughs> supposed to be connected with salvation. Only faith, faith alone. So uh, starting about 15, 23, 24, 25, the Protestant world, picked up by John Calvin and many others, has taught faith only. It's, it's the only thing that God requires for a person to be saved. It's the only condition for receiving salvation. I want you to know there's a difference between the means by which salvation is received and the list of conditions that are required. Faith is one of those conditions, but it's not the only one. You see, just, just like this thing right here, faith is the means by which the electricity from, from this is transferred over here. Pretend this is a lamp, because I, I like to use a lamp for this illustration. I was actually going to bring my electric razor, uh, but I forgot to bring it. So this, is, this comes in as my illustration. But pretend this is a lamp, and this is a lamp, and it's sitting there, would have a light on. If, if you want a lamp, and I, let me tell you this, I explained this to somebody on Facebook, and the pre there was a preacher. That Sunday he preached and used that illustration, brought a lamp to his pulpit, and went through all of this stuff and baptized at least one person as a result of it. But anyway, for this to work, for faith to work, there also has to be electricity over here, right? So somehow this has to be plugged in somewhere. Or if you were in a house, do any of you have lamps in your house? We all have lamps in our house. But what if your electricity were off? What if the, uh, the uh, what, what do you call those things in the box? The breaker. What if the breaker was uh, shot or loose? Or, we used to have batteries, didn't we? Or something like that. There, what? Fuses. There, there you go. Suppose the fuse was shot. There wouldn't be any electricity here. So that would be another condition. See, this is a condition. Plug it in. But you've got to have electricity coming from this side. Well, okay, let's say you've got electricity here, and you've got the fuse, or you got the plug, faith, plugged in. Does that automatically bring light? No. What else do you have to do? You have to turn the lamp on, don't you? Isn't there a little, some kind of a button there you have to push or twist? Yeah, that, so if, that's another condition before you're going to get the light. So let's say we've, we've got the electricity, which is the grace. We've plugged it in, which is the faith. And we have uh, turned it on. Is there anything else you have to do? Doesn't there have to be a bulb? There's got to be a bulb. So there's several conditions besides the faith. And that's true of, of uh, receiving salvation. And that's what the Protestant world doesn't get. Because what they believe is this. They believe that when the Bible says, through faith, now, get me here. 
They believe that when the Bible says through faith, it means as soon as you have faith. That is not true. Just like plugging the thing in here doesn't mean you're going to get light as soon as you plug it in. If it's not connected here, and if it's not turned on, and if it doesn't have a bulb, you see there are other conditions that have to be met. The Bible is clear. There are other conditions besides faith that have to be met. And here at the top of page 2, I'll give you a list of, well, you know what they are. Confession. Confessing Jesus as your Savior is one of those uh, conditions. Notice number 2, the truth is this. There are other conditions for receiving salvation. In addition to the means, there's also the confession... Let me, tell you, let me show you what Romans says about confession. You know it, I'm sure, because you've been taught this. You've been through Romans, but you're going through it. Verse 9, he says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, did you notice he says that these two things are equally necessary. Not just faith in your heart, but confessing with your mouth. The language is the same. Both of them are required in the same way. Uh, he says, and verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and that's the righteousness of God uh, coming from Jesus Christ. That's imputed to you. With the heart you believe, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth you confess, resulting in salvation. Now, I have seen Protestant theologians try to explain this, and they mess it up terribly. Because they don't know how to explain it. Because they are faith only. No other condition. And they'll say, well, it's just part of faith. No, it's not. It's something that happens with faith, but it's not just faith, another part of faith. All right, uh, also listed there, and we talked about this on page 1, Colossians 2.12. Uh, you're buried with him, where? In baptism. And what's the next words? in Colossians 2.12. After it says, buried with him in baptism, what are the next words? In which? In which? In what? What is the which? Baptism. You're buried with him in baptism, in which, namely baptism, you're also raised up with him. So this is just like Romans 6. You studied this. You're buried with Christ in baptism. You're raised up with Christ in baptism. Same thing here in Colossians. And here in Colossians is the clearest statement in the Bible about when you receive your salvation. You see, when, when the Bible says, through faith, that's not a when. That's more like a how. That's the means. But here in Colossians, you get the when. He says, 
in baptism. In baptism. Also repentance. I'm not going to go into this, but you know how Acts 2.38 says, when the people say, what shall we do to be saved? Peter says, repent. He doesn't even mention faith. Because he knows that they, they've already got that in their heart. So he says, you've got to repent and you've got to be baptized. So actually you have these four conditions for receiving salvation. Faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. This is what we talked about a couple of sessions ago when we made a distinction between works of law and what are your works of law? That's when you're living your Christian life. That's when you're obeying God's law for your, for your obedience day by day. But then in addition to works of law in Paul, there are things that he would call obedience to the gospel. Obedience to the gospel. And that is very important. Because those are the, those are the instructions on how to be saved. And that's where believe, repent, confess, and be baptized come in. And that's why when you're thinking about receiving salvation, you can think about this illustration we used where you got to have more than just plugging it in. There has to be some electricity over here. There has to be a switch over here. There has to be a bulb in the lamp. These are the other conditions. Any questions on this? Faith as the means. Mm. No questions. All right. Saved in baptism. That was the third statement in those two passages. We're saved in baptism as the time when salvation is received. That's the Colossians 2.12. That's the moment, if you use the illustration, that would be the moment when you push the plug into the socket. And what happens when you push the plug into the socket? If, if the other conditions are met, the light comes on. That means that's when salvation appears, is when you, put the, when you uh, have already repented and confessed and have... Uh, are being lowered into the waters of baptism. In those waters of baptism, the light comes on because of your faith. That's when your faith begins to transmit uh, salvation. I've, I've taught this uh, for decades. And I've, to I've talked to unbelievers about this, and unbelievers have read what I've said about it. How do they respond to this? Uh, well, in different ways. Um, one of the main ways, and you need to understand this, is when you read the Colossians 2.12 where it says you're buried with him in baptism. In which? Baptism. You're also raised up. The first thing that will come from a Zwinglian's mouth is this. That's not water baptism. It's spirit baptism. Because they've, they've separated these two things. Water baptism over here, which 
according to Zwingli and his followers, has nothing to do with salvation. But you still get spirit baptism, Holy Spirit baptism. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that happens as soon as you have faith. So if, it, if you have a passage in the Bible that connects salvation with baptism, your Zwinglian mentality is that can't be water baptism because that would be a work. It's got to be spirit baptism. How do you answer that? Well, you quote another passage of Scripture by Paul. Ephesians 4, verse 5. Now listen, you know this. That there is one Lord, one faith, and two baptisms. <laughs> right? Well, now if you were a Zwinglian, a Protestant theologian, that's the way you would have to rewrite it. Because that's what they believe, that there are two baptisms. The spirit baptism, which happens as soon as you believe, and then the water baptism, which you do sometime in your Christian life. Paul doesn't say that, does he? He says there's one baptism. There's one moment in your life that counts as your baptism. And that one moment has an outside, which is water, and an inside, which is the Spirit. But it's only one baptism. Here's another thing that they'll say. Well, this can't be right because the thief on the cross was saved and he wasn't baptized. You will hear that all the time. And I, I hear people from the Christian church say that all the time, too. But that, what about that? No there was no church. There was no baptism then. Well, yeah, John baptized, but that's not Christian baptism. It's a horrible mistake to equate Christian baptism, which did not begin until Acts chapter 2 when the church began, with John's baptism. Two totally different baptisms. Now, I don't know, maybe the thief on the cross had been baptized with John's baptism. We don't, even, we don't know that for sure. But it's irrelevant because anybody baptized with John's baptism had to be baptized with Christian baptism to be saved. Remember when Peter answered the question? Uh, who asked the question that he answered? Jews. This was a, an audience of Jews coming from all over the uh, eastern part of the world there. And he had talked about Jesus, and he had talked about uh, salvation through Jesus, and how they had sinned themselves by crucifying Jesus. And they were convicted of their sins. And they cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the Apostle Peter said, well, if you've already been baptized with John, just repent. But everybody else has to be baptized. No, he didn't say that. Actually, here's what he said. Repent, every one of you, and be baptized. Every one of you. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized with John or not. That's not relevant anymore. And if you go to the 19th chapter of Acts, you see people who had been baptized by John that had to be baptized with Christian baptism for their full salvation. So th these, these uh, objections from the Protestant world are, are just so flimsy.
Uh, but the main one that they rely on is the passage that we quoted at the beginning where Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, that no man should boast. Not of works. That's their trump card right there. Because they say, baptism is a work. And if salvation is not of works, then it's not of baptism. So throw baptism out the door here. It has nothing to do with salvation because it's a work. What do we say to that? Here's what we say. Uh, I've got more here than I can explain, but I'm going to sum it up. How are you defining the term works? This is the biggest mistake that Protestantism makes on this issue. And, and this, this is a point that you won't really see discussed anywhere. Uh, I've not seen it anywhere else. It's kind of something that I've come up with. Now, if I were Martin Luther, you see, Martin Luther had to respond to this because he and Zwingli were, he and Zwingli fought over this issue. Luther's in Germany, Zwingli's in Switzerland. Luther said, you're saved in baptism. Zwingli says, no, you're not. So they fought over this. And Zwingli's people, and this is in print somewhere, Zwingli's people says, hey, you're saying you're saved in baptism, but you know baptism's a work, and we can't be saved by works. So you're wrong, Luther. How did Luther respond to that? Tell you how he responded. He said, hmm, you're right. Baptism is a work, but it's not your work. It's God's work. Now, that was a good answer, but it's not good enough. It's, there's more that has to be said. That's a good starting place. Because every time you read something in the New Testament about baptism, there's nothing there about something you're doing. It's always something God is doing. You can see this on page 2, near the bottom of page 2. Point B, almost every New Testament reference to what's happening in Christian baptism describes it as something God is doing in order to save us. Now, I won't try to go into all these, but I have highlighted with bold the references in the Scripture passages that talk about what's going on in baptism. And every time, what's going on is something God is doing, not something you're doing. There's nothing in the Bible, this is point C on top of page 3, there's nothing in the Bible about baptism being. Now, I want you to notice these next words because this is what you hear from the Zwinglian mouths today. And folks, I see this all over the place in Christian churches. Uh, if you look up the, the websites of Christian churches and churches of Christ and what they say about baptism, this is the language you see. And it's horrible because we have been we have been seduced 
by Zwinglianism. And everything we say about baptism when we're trying to, you know, not insult people, when we try to explain it, we talk about it's something we do. We are demonstrating something. We are responding to something God did. We are expressing our faith. We're making a commitment to God. Notice all these things are things you do. We're making it, it's a testimony. It's a confirmation, an announcement. We're announcing. We're, we're making a sign. We're, we're pledging something. I don't know if I should say this or not, but I can remember in this very church, not this building here, but the one we attended, every time, and this is a long time ago, so you probably don't even know who I'm talking about, I hope. Every invitation, every time the invitation was given, it was, in, it was worded like this, that you need to repent, believe and repent and come forward and express your faith in Christian baptism. Is that, can you find that anywhere in the Bible, that baptism is expressing your faith? Absolutely not. Now, you might be doing that, but that's not how the Bible describes it. Baptism is described as receiving something God is doing. Here, here's, the, here's the main argument that the Zwinglian uses about baptism. You see, um, I'm going to leave that point behind now, the Lutheran argument. Luther says, yes, baptism's a work, but it's not your work, it's God's work. That's true. But I said a while ago, something more is needed. Now, the reason something more is needed is the, the good Zwinglian here is going to point out that that's not a good enough argument. That's not a good enough response. Because the deal is this. In your baptism, you are doing something. You are giving yourself. You... you, you uh, I know that uh, the way I've seen it explained, you at least have to hold your nose and, and uh, hold your breath, close your mouth. There are things you have to do, but even just coming and submitting to baptism is your choice. It's something you're doing. And in the Bible, praying, you're praying, you're believing. There are things you are doing. So what is the problem here? The problem is this, and th this, this is something I've never seen really discussed. How are you defining that term works? Most of the time in the Christian world, when you talk about works, here's how people define it. Something you do. That's it. A work is something you do. With the emphasis on the word you. Something you do rather than something God does. That's a work. Is it a good definition of the term work? Actually, it is. And the Bible sometimes, notice the word sometimes, the Bible sometimes uses the term work in the sense of something you do. And let me give you an example of that. This is very important. Um... John chapter 6, in something Jesus said, I said this is very important. 
If you're asleep, wake up. <laughs> All right. Th this is something Jesus said, starting at John 6, 26. This is after the feeding of the 5,000, and people have followed Jesus, and he's preaching to them. He said, uh, Truly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs like the feeding of the 5,000, not because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Notice the word work. This is the verb, but it's the same as the noun, just a different form from the word uh, that's used as the, the noun. Do not work for the food which perishes. But what does he say? But work for the food which endures to eternal life. He's actually saying work for salvation. In other words, there's something you must do for your salvation. Work for that kind of food which the Son of Man will give you. For in him uh, God the Father has set his seal. Now notice the next. Therefore they said to him, well, What then shall we do? See, this is how the term work is being used and defined. Wor a work is something you do. So Jesus says you need to work for eternal salvation. And so the people says, Okay, what, what should we do that we may work the works of God? You see the term work here? And what does he mean by work the works of God? Work the works that God wants us to work. And then Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. This, this is so important. This is the term work. It's the same term Paul is using in Ephesians and other, Romans and other places. It's the word ergon, if you want the, the Greek word. But he says this is the work of God. And by that he means this is the work God wants you to do to be saved. Got that? And what then is that work? That you believe in Him whom He has sent. Well, is believing something you do? Yes, it is. Contrary to Calvinism, which says you can't believe because you're totally depraved and God has to believe for you, He gives you the gift of faith. That's baloney. Pardon the, the uh, theological term. Uh, but here's the deal. Jesus says, if you're going to be saved, you do have to do something. There are works that you have to do. And the work that He mentioned is faith. I, why am I making such a big deal of this? Because you come over to Paul, and what did he say in Ephesians 2? By grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. <gasps> well, Jesus has already said, there is a work. Faith itself is a work. But Paul separates faith from the category of works. And he says it's by faith, but not by works. What's going on here? This is something that is crucially important if you're going to answer the, 
argument that the faith-only people use. Paul is using the term works in another sense, another definition. He's not using the term works in this generic, common, everyday sense of something you do. He's using it in a different sense because it's different from faith, which is something you do. So how is he using, what does Paul mean when he uses the term works? I don't have, I'm sorry I don't have time to go into this, but here the deal is. Do you remember back in uh, Romans chapter 3, after he explains why people cannot be saved by how good they are, uh, they cannot be saved by their own works. This is at the end of chapter 3, verse 20. He says, uh, By works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20. First place I know of that Paul uses this expression. Works of law. Get down to verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. What kind of works? Works of law. If you go over to Galatians, several times in the book of Galatians, he, he also uses that phrase, works of law. Um, let me read one verse. This is the longest verse in the New Testament, I think. It's uh, Galatians 3, 16. Uh, sorry. Uh, 2, 16. Galatians 2, 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of law, since by works of law no flesh will be justified by Christ. Works of law. And by the way, in the Greek text, there is no article in any of these passages before either works or law. The translators have added, and it's a huge mistake to add the in front of works and the in front of law. There's no the in any of the passages that use that phrase. It's simply works of law. Now what does Paul mean when he says works of law? This is a very important point, and most, most interpreters just don't get it. They think he's talking about the law of Moses. Well, the law of Moses is included, but what he's talking about, go back to lesson one here. Every, Christ, every human being is under a law code. We're under a law code, the new covenant law code. Pagans are under the law code of the heart. Uh, Jews were under the law of Moses as a law code. Everybody's under a law code. And how you respond to your law code is a work of law. Even your sins are works of law because you've broken a law. That's how you've responded. Work of law. Why do you think in Ephesians 2, verse uh, 10, Paul says, For we are, uh, let's see, how does he put it? Uh, 
For we are created in Christ Jesus for, what does he say? For good works. Because there are bad works. And that's sins. Why do you think he says in Romans 3.28 that uh, a, a, a person is justified by faith apart from works of law? Most of the time when people read that, they think he's talking only about good works. Wrong. He's talking about your sins mainly. Because sins are works of law. They're works you've done in disobedience to the law. Just like there are works of, in obedience to, the, to your law. What he's saying is, see, when Paul uses the term works of law, he's talking about everything you do except believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. Everything you do in response to a law command of God, whether it's bad or whether it's good. So when Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works. He's simply repeating what he said back in three, Romans 3.28. We're justified by faith apart from works of law. When you're thinking about how you're saved, it's by how you are obeying the gospel, not by how well you're obeying your law code. And what's another word for law code? Hmm. Living the Christian life. That's, remember, the fifth item, fifth step in our old plan of salvation. When Paul says apart from works of law, he's saying, forget that fifth step because that's law-keeping. We're not saved by how well we keep the law. You break a commandment of God, you're wearing the robe of righteousness that's covering you and you are forgiven. And if your heart is right, you will repent and you will confess that to God. Let me see. Um, let me just tell you what the fifth, what the fourth point of this lesson is about. And this is on page four. We've said so far, we're saved by grace as the way. We're saved through faith as the contact point, the means. We're saved in baptism as the time. Now, the last point is there in Ephesians 2, verse 10, where he says, uh, For we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, what are good works? That's works of law. The obedient works of law. But you're not saved by those. You're saved for good works. I've, when you look at all the world's religions, every religion in the world, besides Christianity and the Old Testament, if you read it right, every religion in the world believes that you are saved by your by works, by how good you are. However they define that, they all define it differently. 
We're not saved by works. But I know some Christians who believe that we are actually saved from works. <laughs> Literally. And that's how they interpret that Romans 6 verse 14. That we're not under law. Therefore, we don't have to do anything. You know who somebody is that teaches that? Carl Ketcherside. Carl Ketcherside, one of our own Restoration Movement people. In his, um, I say, I forgot the name of the book where he teaches it. It was published by Standard Publishing, in fact. Um, Save from works. His point is, if you love God, you'll do them anyways, but you don't have to. That's wrong. Because Paul says we're saved for good works. Which we're supposed to do because we're creatures of the Creator who has given us a law code that we are obligated to live by. And we're saved so that we can live by that law. This is what, in that passage in Romans, uh, sorry, Ephesians, when he says, uh, where we are, uh, I can never remember how it starts. We are his workmanship. That's what I couldn't remember. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's part of our salvation. Anybody remember the last lesson? Salvation is a double cure. Double cure. Two things that happened in your baptism when you receive grace. First of all, you're forgiven of your sins. Justified. Forgiven. Guilt and punishment are taken away. No, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The second thing that happens is your nature's changed. You're born again. You're raised from the dead. You are created all over again. Uh, well, that's what he's talking about here in Ephesians when he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The second part of the double cure of salvation which is the Holy Spirit entering you in your baptism and touching your soul, your dead soul, your spiritually dead soul. And when He touches it, the light comes on. You're alive. Now what? What are you supposed to do with that new life and light? supposed to obey God's law for the rest of your life. For good works. Not by good works. Not from good works. <coughs> but for good works. <coughs> That's because we've been saved. Notice how this point begins. We're saved for good works as the result of being saved. Not as the cause, but the result. Three things. This, this outline ends with three points. And there's a whole lesson in that little book with these three points. Three things that you as a Christian should say about good works. First thing you need to say is, I ought to do good works. And that's because of creation. You're a creature. You owe obedience to your creator and lawgiver and judge. Second thing you say is, I can do good works. Why? Because I've been recreated. 
I've been raised from the dead. I've got life. And the last thing, we haven't really talked about this. You say, I will do good works. And I will do them because of love. And we're talking here about the motive. What motivates us to be good? What motivates us to want to live the Christian life? You see, if, you're, if all you're thinking about is those five steps, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and live the Christian life, what's your motive for wanting to live the Christian life? So you won't be lost. You want to live the Christian life so you can go to heaven. Because the only way you can go to heaven is not sin without having asked forgiveness or something before you die. So the reason for trying to obey God is self-centered, to save yourself. Now, when you understand grace, it affects everything you do for the rest of your life. You, are, you, you obey out of love, unselfish motivation. Jesus said, if you want to go to heaven, you'll obey my commandments. You remember when he said that? I don't. He didn't say that. What did he say? If you love me, if you love me you'll keep my commandments. Hmm. And we can do that if we understand grace. All right. I got pretty close. Your turn. Okay. Well, from my simple old account mind, not the theologian mind, uh, on the uh, argument about baptism being a human work, uh, Number one, in John 3, when Jesus is answering Nicodemus, he says, water and the Spirit. And when we're born, is the baby doing the work or the mother, the creator, the mother doing the work? The baby's not doing mm -hmm. the work. And then yeah. in Romans 6, where we're buried in, into death and raised to new life, if you have a serious heart attack and there's no heartbeat and you're laying on the table <laughs> do you do any work to get up off the table or does somebody have to have to shock you and get your heart running again and give yeah. you new life at that point give me the fibrillator yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> so I, I just I you know when people go off mm -hmm. on the idea mm -hmm. that, that that humans are doing the work in baptism I, I just refer to those yeah. two as a simple way to explain that uh, mm -hmm. the other is uh, know your education so pardon this from a guy that grew up with preachers from Ozark and Dallas but I like I like the five finger exercise but not the way you described it because Romans 10 you quoted part of it but you didn't go all the way to 14 how shall they believe if they do not hear right so we we used to put here in front because until somebody explains Christ to us we can't do any of the mm -hmm. rest of it mm -hmm. because we're told repeatedly it's got to come from our mind and our heart. Mm -hmm. So our mind has to accept the, the message through hearing or reading. Uh, you know, so those two things. And then um, 
One other comment about Zwingli and his uh, his more prolific buddy Calvin and their uh, opposition to baptism. Um, I really believe that a lot of that was their overreaction to the Roman Catholic Church and the seven sacraments, which included baptism, as works of man in order to earn their salvation. So I, I, I think that, that they just, they, re, they overreacted, but they led probably, what, 90% of Protestant Christianity down a really bad yeah. road. It's a, mm. But anyway, uh, yeah, I think that uh, I think that partly explains why they were so opposed to baptism, mm -hmm. uh, because it had been taught incorrectly. Anyway, it was taught as a work of man. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for the comments. Now, <clears throat> you remember that uh, one of the first. Protestants to respond to the Catholic Church was Luther, oh, yeah. and he did not change his view of baptism. So, if you so you don't want to say that this was totally a response to the Catholic Church because because of Luther, but it may be true of, of Zwingli, but he he was very opposed to what Luther said on that. On the uh, on the point about adding hearing. Bob Shannon, you know who he is, Bob Shannon, Mike Shannon's uh, father. When I was a little boy, uh, Bob Shannon was one of the main revival preachers in our territory down in Kentucky. I heard him preach many times. Also, he wrote a thesis somewhere for a degree on the plan of salvation. And in, in that thesis, he, he studied the uh, Restoration Movement Fathers, and Restoration Movement literature, and he came up with ten different versions. <laughs> ten different versions of the plan of salvation. So yes, there, there's been uh, more than one way of explaining it. I'm on Facebook, and a couple of my Facebook friends are baptism fanatics. They're always publishing material on the plan of salvation, and they're all, they always use hearing as the first. If you want to do this, that's fine with me. Uh, uh, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. The only, the good thing about that, you can still use five fingers. <laughs> See, it's a five point. If you if you add uh, live the Christian life, you got six. Then, and I I know people who've had six fingers, but that, that's <laughs> unusual. But th this same guy or, or one of his friends, a lot of times he'll put all six of them on his. Uh, yeah. Facebook post. So it doesn't matter to, uh, to me if you want to add hearing. That, that's fine. I, I don't add that um, because it's kind of an assumption. But if, if, uh, if you want to add it, that, that's okay. Anything else? What's the history behind it? It just kind of mm -hmm. pops in there. <laughs> This is an excellent question, and nobody really has a final answer to that. Uh, in fact, there's something going on right this moment in, fa in my Facebook back and forth. This, this is something that's being discussed. Um, there are some people, I disagree with them, who, says, who say the flood was God preparing for baptism. 
crossing the Red Sea, was God preparing? I don't think so. I don't think that at all. But in, uh, in the Law of Moses, read the book of Hebrews, you, you'll see. In the Law of Moses, there are many rituals of cleansing, being cleansed from impurity of various kinds. Uh, these rituals of cleansing often involved immersion in water. In fact, when the priests went in to do their work as priests, they had a baptistry that they immersed themselves in. Um, they, they also had smaller containers where there would be water that you would immerse things in or an animal even. Whatever was considered unclean could be, would have water applied to it and also water mixed with blood, the blood of a sacrifice. That was very common. And so the, the water would either, and you couldn't do this to a house, for example, but sometimes it would be a house or a bed. In fact, this is mentioned in the Gospels, beds being immersed. Uh, but sometimes you, you can't immerse something, but you put the water on it. And that, that's, that's because we associate water with cleansing. And I think that's where this comes from. Um, the idea of being totally immersed, like I say, was in the uh, practice of the uh, Jews in, the, in their immersion, uh, the priests immersing themselves in preparation for their work. So that when, uh, when John the Baptist comes along, he is the first, and this is by revelation from God. He didn't dream this up. He did not get it from the Essenes over on the Dead Sea. He got it from God. Read Romans, or rather uh, John chapter 1, down around verse 27, 8. I forgot the exact verse. But uh, it's stated there clearly that it's God who told him to do these things. And he was a prophet of God, and God is the one who told him to baptize and that would be uh, after the pattern of the law of Moses. So this is not salvation uh, like in Roman or in, um, in Christian baptism. For one thing, because there's no Holy Spirit being given in the Old Testament times. But that's that was the first time God actually told people to be baptized in connection with a kind of conversion of themselves rather than just some religious ritual that you did in part as part of your worship then on the day of pentecost this is where god again revealed it he started baptism for the double cure of grace this is where you receive forgiveness of sins and that's where you receive something totally new, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which was not given in Old Testament times. This, that, that, that's the new thing. I, I think we don't realize uh, un, enough how 
knew and significant the day of Pentecost was and how new and significant Christian baptism was and how new and significant the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was. These were new things. Uh, go back into the Old Testament. When, if you read my book on the Holy Spirit, you'll see a lot of this. I go into the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah 44 and 45, where the prophecy says, and I don't have the exact words, God says, there's going to come a time when I do a new thing. A new thing. And this is when he talks about the water. The, the outpouring, pouring out of the Holy Spirit like pouring out water. That's what happened on uh, Pentecost. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the moment of baptism. Uh, sometimes you hear, hear people use Acts 10, household of Cornelius, where the Gentiles uh, received the Holy Spirit and then were baptized afterwards. Could you touch on that? Yes. Yes. What people don't understand, uh, people who have a problem with that are people who think there's only one reason to receive the Holy Spirit, and that's salvation, which is uh, a serious mistake. There, I, I've identified four different reasons where a person is given the Holy Spirit. And we know that because we, we talk about the gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the gift of... Uh, service, the gift of teaching, and uh, you look at the different lists in the New Testament. He gave some to be prophets, some apostles, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. That's one reason. That's not a salvation gift. It's a service gift. But in addition to, to salvation and service, there's also, and this is one of the most important, Sometimes the Holy Spirit is given as a sign gift. Given to a person so that that person has miraculous powers that serve as a sign of a new revelation that God has given. Sign gifts were present in the Old Testament. Moses had sign gifts. Moses touched the water. Maybe Aaron did, I forget. They, they kind of took turns on this. But they touched the water of the Nile, it turned to blood. That was a sign gift. That's the Holy Spirit working through them, giving them power. You get into the Gospels. The Holy Spirit is upon Jesus. Jesus has power through the Holy Spirit upon him. Uh, the apostles were given power. You get into the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, it says, The Holy Spirit was poured out. That's the first verses of Acts 2. For what purpose at that point? This is not a salvation gift yet. This is a sign gift at this point. When the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, and whether he came on the rest of them or not, I won't go into, but at least when he came upon the apostles, what did they immediately begin to do? Well, you had the little tongues of fire, but what did they do? Speak, speak in tongues, speak in other languages. What's the purpose of that? It's a sign. It's a miracle. That's why they received it. This doesn't mean they were saved at that point. I believe, if, if you want to ask me this, when Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, that includes the apostles. 
they were they baptized each other probably first but uh, apart from that the speaking in tongues not for salvation it was a sign when you come to Acts 10 when Cornelius and his household began to speak in tongues when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them that was not for salvation at that point that was a sign why was a sign necessary there because something right this is something new this is a new thing and God had revealed this to Peter just look look right in Acts just before this whole event uh, where God revealed this to Peter and the foods coming down in the sheet and so on everything's clean Gentiles are clean you need to be baptizing Gentiles Peter even Peter didn't know didn't get that at this point so the speaking in tongues on the part of these Gentiles was the same purpose as the speaking in tongues by the Apostles on Pentecost it was a sign that this revelation that God was giving this new revelation had to be paid attention to and believed and that's when Peter said oh man when I saw that I knew we better get these people baptized right away because that's what God was poking them about and the speaking in tongues was God poking these Peter and the people with him saying get busy here yeah I'm not sure I can remember them all um, salvation that's the one the new one uh, the sign and the service can't remember the fourth one. I got a, two whole books on this subject. <laughs> I wish I could remember everything I'd ever written. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, uh, it actually starts with an S, but I can't remember what it was right now. Um, yes. Is he using that word air like we do, or is there something unique about it? Well, it's unique in the sense uh, that he's talking about on the spiritual level where we use it about family, where the spiritual connection necessarily and are from one family. What he's, the main thing he's talking about in the 8th chapter of Romans when he's talking about this inheritance is heaven and the resurrection of the body. Even when you're baptized, you become a part of the family of Jesus. I don't know if you remember that... Uh, Sometimes when the New Testament talks about Jesus and especially about his baptism, they say he was the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead. No, that's not his baptism. I'm sorry. It's his resurrection from the dead. When he was raised from the dead, he is the firstborn in a new kind of... He's talking about the eternal life family where we... Uh, even now as Christians we don't have that inheritance the inheritance comes when we get our new bodies and are given the new heavens and the new earth into which to live that's the inheritance Christ is the firstborn of that family through his resurrection into a new glorified body you know 
Paul says, this is Philippians 3, that we'll have a glorified body just like his. And if you're looking there in, in Romans 8, uh, th this is his main point where he's talking about the fact that the new, uh, that the universe itself is under pain right now. Uh, verse 22, we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. But it's going to be renewed. We're waiting eagerly. It's waiting eagerly for uh, its own renewal. And we, this is the 23rd verse, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, our spirit has been changed, but not our bodies, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Are we already adopted? In one sense, we are. But he's actually here talking about that full adoption. When we, well, what does he say? Our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. When we get our new bodies to go with the new earth. If you go down into verse 29, he talks about being predestined. And a lot of people totally misunderstand predestination because they don't understand it like, like Paul means it here. He says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Now, what kind of image is he talking about there? Not our spiritual image, but our bodily resurrection. He goes on to say, conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. There's the family. So, God foreknows whether we're going to respond to the gospel or not. And those whom he foreknows, he predestines not to become believers. That's Calvinism. He predestines to be in heaven, in the new body. Let me give you another passage on the inheritance to show it's talking about a future thing. This is 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope. And the hope is this new life coming up. New hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain, this is our hope, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Anything else? I'm still thinking about your four ways the Spirit is given. I'm wondering if the fourth could be something along the lines of strength or power to endure. <sighs> yeah. I think you're right. I can't, that may not be the word I use. You said it has words up on but that is a main point. Yeah, that's why we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism, uh, is to give us strength to obey the law code. Uh, I think I use another word for that, but I think, uh, yeah, uh, Ephesians 3.16, Paul says, I pray for you that, that uh, God may strengthen you through the Holy Spirit who is within you. So he actually uses that word. So that is the fourth one. Yeah. Sanctification. Yeah, to sanctify us. He's one of our elders. <laughs> oh, here, here. Oh, okay. 
All right, see, listen to him, okay? For another month. <laughs> <laughs> There's one more, I'll take one more. <laughs> it says the first kind of the gifts given can be called truth gifts. Yes, uh, I, I have different ways I've said that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> truth gift, sign gift, service gifts. Yeah. Salvation. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to go back and look to see all the ways I've talked about that. It's, see, I, I've been thinking about these things for 60 years now. And it comes out different ways at different times. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Except not everybody who received the truth gift wrote scripture, like John the Baptist Anyway, you done with me? I'm, Are you done with me? That's no, I, I, I can do whatever you want. Thank you, Jack. Well, we promise you. Thank you. One of the things I appreciate about